What are the minerals in the batteries that iPhones actually need? Called. Do I look like a scientist? <laughs> what are you asking? You're listening questions? to Owen McDermott's podcast. Fully researched, fully fetched. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fact check material. Oh, it's been a long time coming. Hello, everybody. Owen here. You're all very welcome to the second season of Deep Diving, the podcast. Thanks for your patience while I got the second season up and running. Our first guest today is hopefully worth the wait. He's the twinkly-eyed linguistic acrobat and thespian, Mr. Robert Sheehan. Rob is loved by many people for many things. For some, he'll always be Nathan in Misfits, his breakout role in the iconic, probably now cult Channel 4 show, For other people, he's Darren in Love Hate, one of the biggest TV series of all time in Ireland. And most recently, of course, he's been appearing as Klaus in the runaway Netflix smash hit The Umbrella Academy. In this chat, we talk about fame, Me Too, climate activism, sexuality, meditation, why he hates Los Angeles, and how he originally thought Umbrella Academy might be a bit of a flop, amongst many other things. I've known Rob for about 10 years now and occasionally when we get together we can get a little bit giddy. We try to forego that on this chat so hopefully you find something uh, interesting to tickle your fancy. Enjoy. Welcome back. This is Deep Diving with Robert Sheehan. Hey, I, I said to you that I was a fan of David Tennant's podcast. Oh yeah, I haven't heard his podcast. He's got a great podcast and this is called Deep Diving and that's what it does. It's a deep dive into the psyche of a person. So I know mm. you could wax lyrical about many subjects because you've got a really inquisitive mind and a great turn of phrase. But I want to talk about you. Oh no. I know. Boring! <laughs> <laughs> I was watching Ellen DeGeneres what the other day. Self? Yeah, go on. And Chris Martin from Coldplay was on. Oh, and no, Ellen DeGeneres Not boring Still boring I think Chris Martin He's got a really wry sense of humour I think he there's might, more going on there He might but his music is terribly boring You should listen to the new album It's not that boring oh, you know I'm not going to listen to They're it They're un- uninhibited The shackles are off Why Why were the shackles on? Because they were they were dancing to the commercial drum They mm. care too much about charting They don't care about this one They're not promoing The point is right, right. Chris Martin's on with Ellen And she asks So where did the name Coldplay come from? Hmm and even though it's Ellen DeGeneres, you know, the biggest chat show in the entire world, he doesn't indulge her. He gives her a kind of a distasteful, disappointed look and he goes, this stuff is on Wikipedia, man. It's been 25 years. Wow. Just shuts it down. Good on him. Did she just have that thought off the top of her head? No, I assume she does. I assume everything on that show is choreographed right, right. to within an inch of its life. Wow. That's like, what a waste of a question with Chris Martin. And then he goes, by way to kind of counter the awkwardness, he gives a very generous anecdote to, to move the conversation along. That spiralling long anecdote was the point was, don't not want to talk about yourself. It's too late now. We're oh, here. Yeah. We're in the room. That wasn't that long, Owen. I think you've been conditioned by radio that you feel like there's a sort of a, a glass ceiling to an anecdote. You I have. Feel, I'm conditioned. You're on podcasts now, man. There's no glass ceiling to the length of an anecdote. We also have to leave soon, though. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I'm starting to have murderous thoughts in this lightless room. So self-preservation and time constraints. (laughs) Hey, so the question I do want to ask, right, because we've known each other some time, but I don't Mm. know this actually about you. Mm. So you grew up in Port Leash. Yeah. What were you like as a teenager before you were Robert Sheehan, the actor, when you were just the guy in school? Were you a pain in the arse? Were you driven? Were you... Man about town, were you drinking cans around the back of a shed? I took very little interest in academic absorption. Do you know what I mean? I sort of went through it and did what you had to do, you know, get sort of C's and B's in your final exams. But ultimately I was kind of, I always felt like I was in sort of lobotomy robot mode 
when having to do anything intellectual. Not intellectual, because I wouldn't even award it that, that level of a, a word. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my version of education when I went through it was essentially just this is what they're looking for. There was this kind of ominous they, whoever yeah. they are, the kind of marking bodies of, a, of an exam that you're terrified of as you're sort of hurtling towards it. And uh, everything else is pointless. You know, I, I don't have negative memories of school. It's just the actual schooling bits of school I found vaguely, uh, rarely stimulating, to be honest with you. And like, you know, I'd, I'd class myself as, I'm not the cleverest chap in the world, but I'm certainly not the stupidest, to quote the movie High Fidelity, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, you know, I, I got into writing the last few years and I've, got, I'm, I've done a book now, which is cool. Because you're very articulate but, and you've got a great turn of phrase. Like, were you a big yeah, English No, I, in, English in... was my least strong uh, exam result. That's surprising to me. So I got a D minus, I remember, in English. Because I used to get essays back and they were all like red pen in the margins and things crossed out and like... But you seem to enjoy know, just like know, linguistic yeah, flourishes love and it. stuff. Absolutely yeah. love it. But the, but the, the, school created a disjunct in me between oral communication and whatever it does when it travels down the arm into the pen. That's wrong. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That, that drilled that message into me. And it wasn't for uh, from the age of like 17, I left secondary school until the age of 27, 28, when I actually started writing. And suddenly, and maybe it was to do with, you know, uh, uh, maturation, maybe a little bit of meditation, understanding what voices I should in, uh, entertain more inside my mind more than others. But I started, I was in L.A. I was also de- highly unemployed. Right? I hadn't yeah. worked in six months. And um, I just started writing and I just said to myself, instead of listening to that negative tsunami voice that always comes through because your stuff doesn't sound enough like a textbook. Yeah. Just switch him off. Don't listen to him. Everything that he says, do the opposite of. Not quite, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, it just opened the floodgates. It really did. And I started writing just like I'd say stuff. And... If it looks, you know, if it if it looks weird or if it's, you know, if it goes off on a tangent for two pages, fuck it. I had to kind of redress the situation. I had to recover from my English education to become a writer. And I'm not slagging off education in general. I don't know what it's like these days. I can't speak for it. But I, I just found it, a lot of it, very fucking mind-numbing. Yeah. And teachers... Teachers after a number of years, like really, there are really, really lovely ones. They're really, really lovely ones. But a lot of them are, they're so corrective. You know, they're so quick to find and they fault. And they got to become stale too in a really they narrow do. syllabus. They do, after, exactly, exactly. You know, I think I found a, a great rigidity to education. But what was I like as a kid? I didn't really let it affect me. I think as a kid, I always had this kind of delusional uh confidence which which kind of facilitated my um, showing off in front of a camera at an early age and having the belief that I could kind of do that stuff my mother really really sort of ingrained in me a kind of a inflated (laughs) delusional confidence (laughs) god bless you ma'am I love you dearly and daddy but when you're in Portlaoise and you've no like obviously you can you can seek out idols on the big screen or the small screen or whatever but when did you get the acting bug and when did it become apparent to you that it was more than a fanciful flight and something Mm. you could actually do as a living 
I got the acting book straight away. We, we did a play in in primary school when I was twelve, I think, called Oliver with a Twist, hey. which was lots of audience participation, making parents look like idiots on stage, doing all that type of stuff, and just. You know, when you're that age, I think when you get like a a massive wave of conditional love, (laughs) like you're really good at this thing, that thing, you you know, there's such a such a powerful magic spell, you know, over a 12 year old's mind. Yeah, that that was it. That was I was fully in and invested at that point. So I was I was on my mother to kind of bring me to auditions and. And do more performance stuff. At that stage in my life, I was chasing not necessarily the joy and creativity of performance, the art of it. I was I was chasing the approval. Sure. You know, when you're younger, I think the world sort of teaches you what to prioritize by uh, giving you encouragement or discouragement, essentially based on. So when I was about 19 or 20, I did a, a, a kind of a slew of jobs. First, it was uh, Cherry Bomb, this movie in Belfast which was just a riotous time. It was like five weeks in Belfast, partying, having the crack. And then it was this trilogy for Channel 4 called the Red Riding Trilogy, which was rather kind of dark and serious. But I I kind of, I think I got better as an actor in the Red Riding Trilogy thing because I was surrounded by all these fucking amazing actors who were doing really, really committed stuff. Yeah, And there was sort of, it was just like, you're in now and let's go you know what I mean and then I went straight into this um, action film with Nicolas Cage and Ron Perlman and Claire Foy and there's a lot That's of a names serious down. cast yeah Claire Foy and me it was, it was her first job Claire Foy if people don't know she's the, the guy who plays opposite you said the guy the she's guy. that dude you know who plays the <laughs> queen <laughs> it was edgy casting we'll cast a dude to play Queen Elizabeth II <laughs> yeah she plays Queen Elizabeth II yeah and what well, age Olivia you Coleman plays it now I was 20. Does your head run away with you then? Are you going, fuck, this is it. I'm in the club. I've made it. Or does it just feel like another gig? Big time. Yeah. There's huge egoic excitement, I would call it. You know, excitement for the advancement of oneself. There was a, you know, there was a real rareness to what was happening with that. Sure. Um, I remember I was in Leeds doing the red riding thing and I was talking to my agent on the phone and we were talking about like the fees for the Nick Cage film and I was like fuck <laughs> I was like, getting loads of money yeah wow you know so it was all I don't think I I don't think my head ever ran away with me I don't think I changed as a as a, as a human being for the worse well could you talk to me a bit more about fame in general I guess as your as your career grew maybe with two reference points like particularly Love Hate in Ireland. Um, if people didn't see Love Hate, if you're listening outside of Ireland, it was a big crime drama. Rob was the star. And it was the biggest thing in the country when it was on the on the television. And you became, off the back of that TV show in Ireland, certainly, like Hollywood famous. You were Hollywood famous off a TV show. And also Umbrella Academy, which has kind of propelled you to a new level of, of fame worldwide. What kind of effect does that have on, I guess, your psyche and your sense of self wow it's uh it's it's a very very it's it's when you're a, a younger man you know the novelty of it has you know it can have great sort of longevity a part of what i love about it and it's taken me maybe this long to realize what it is i love about it when you say it you mean fame it i mean like living in ireland around love hate time especially after the second series of it was Im- completely impractical first of all because 
you know, when every human being knows your face and kind mm. of, you know, most people are incredibly sort of well-mannered and good-natured and stuff. But it's it's a strange objectification, you know, to be dealt with on a daily basis. It yeah. just doesn't feel very healthy for your soul. So I was aware of that on that level. I was aware that this is not a normality and therefore you should, not normality, but it's not something that's, nutritious for you rob like that was always something that i felt and it was like don't because you were susceptible to the no i think i wasn't susceptible i think in order to be susceptible to it you have to be someone who goes wow this is this this is is, i'm going to allow this into my being it's going to change me because i've seen actors that i've you know known for over the years kind of get famous or get successful one or two here and there who become different you know they 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 become more egocentric and they become the person who's perhaps in a group of us that isn't taking an interest in everybody else. They're waiting for everybody else to take an interest in them because that's what they're used to. Yeah, okay. You know what I mean? And it, it it's not nice. It's not pleasant to be around. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it's just, I, I, I think I always, in fairness to me, I had the sensitivity around that to be like, this does not come past, you know, the, the membrane of my skin. But that said... You still feel fame subtly change you as the years goes on. You see, in as the what year sense? Goes. Well, because the way people treat you, you know, fame is the mask that eats into the face. And again, it's a, it's a sort of a subtlety thing. It was interesting, man, after the, sec- after the series of Umbrella Academy come out, you know, because I didn't really know what the fuck that was going to be like. And, yeah. And it came out and it was all a bit mad, successful. And yeah. suddenly my status yeah. around other people changed. It kind of elevated. Do you know what I mean? And suddenly in Ireland, I was I'm being treated like an elder statesman when I walk into a hotel. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That kind of thing. And that's very odd because, as I said, you know, I've been very, very guarded around not allowing that type of thing to distort the kind of the, the, the essence, the sort of central cord of who I am, because I think it's a very poisonous thing, especially if you're a creative person. Yeah. And so then, you, you know, you're just you. And then suddenly I bow six, six months away in Toronto, I just come back to Ireland and there was this sort of this kind of reverence, you know, this sort of, I suppose I started to feel a little bit more like gay burn or something. <laughs> <laughs> is that, is that a true confession? Is that, yeah, because I suppose what Umbrella has done is yeah. elevated you to a new level. Yeah, it has. I think when American success or perceived American success happens, it sort of changes your relationship with other Irish people to some degree. Like I was back just after coming back from Toronto where we shot Umbrella Academy. I came back, I went straight to Kilkenny for this festival. That really struck me as quite surprising. It's not unpleasant, you know, it was just quite jarring that suddenly you're being given a different position. You're being given a different space by everybody else. Can I get this for you, sir? (laughs) Yeah, you know, there's a slight kind of, you're kissing babies and stuff. Do you know what I mean? You're like... Here, have a picture with me and you have to have one with my nan. You know what I mean? This kind of like, I just, you know. But if you're self-aware enough to know. Yeah, yeah, of course. That, that you, you witness the change in yourself and you witness the change in other people around you. Mm. Are you trying to fight it or are you just kind of going, fuck it, this is my life now? I fought it a little bit at the start. I mean, I, I felt it first when we came back to start the second series of Umbrella Academy. We came back to Toronto and... The crew were all a bit younger and I think the success of the show necessitated a sort of a tightening up in the kind of corporate top down. So there was a slightly more, slightly higher tension of an atmosphere 
on set. Uh, in what sense? Like this is does this uh, needs because, to work? Yeah, this is this, a big deal. Yeah, there's more and more and more money being spent on this series. Logistically, it's mental. We have to stick to a schedule. Sometimes you would be treated as though you're the thing that could potentially get this person fired. Do you know what I'm saying? And I think where that came from was the big success of the show. And of course, outwardly, everything is fantastic and great. But those successes come with chicanes that you've got to navigate. You know, it's uh, it's a whole new sort of set of subutio. (laughs) You know, you have to kind of learn the new pieces and you have to learn how to be that new person for other for people, because that's the person that they see. Yeah. Did you say apart from Stranger Things season two, next in line in terms of viewership or whatever yeah, way or they the measure t- most one of them, yeah, viewed yeah, yeah. series Netflix had was Umbrella? Unexpected in the in the nicest possible way. You yeah. know. I I didn't see all of the Umbrella tricks in their bag before it was released. You know what I mean? Explain. Well, I think the show had a lot more going for it than I thought it did when we when we made it. But that's often the way, man. That's not like, you know, when you're an actor making something your head is completely in the weeds of developing your bit of it. You know, your character is is this thing and how do you want it to swirl through the show and what effect do you want him to have? So it's a very, it's not self-obsessed because you're you're obsessing about a character, which is other, of course. Mm. So the show, you know, there's a million other workings going on, departmental workings. It's, it's like running a country, man. You know, the logistics of these shows these days, they're fucking massive. Yeah. You know, so... I just I just wasn't paying a lot of attention around how it was being shot, the kind of references it was taking, how cinematic, it, you know, like... And I'll be absolutely honest with you. They sent us a couple of episodes of it, and I absolutely hated it with a passion. Really? Yeah, I did. I was like, this is this is for 14-year-olds. Tonally, it's completely not the show I thought I was making. But then sort of episode three, four on, I thought it really sort of pulled up its bootstraps and was like wow this is actually very very good telly and it had it actually taught me a lesson about because with with tv you know there's 10 episodes of um umbrella so they'd have five different directors over yeah. that period which sometimes you know like again you know the third director comes in because they do their preparation for their two episodes let's say yeah. while the previous director is shooting theirs and so they you know they come in and Sometimes from the actor's perspective, it's hard to know exactly like what 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 power, what autonomy do you have and what difference are you bringing compared to the last fella or lady? You know what I mean? And it it showed me just exactly the sort of difference in quality between those directors that there can be and the effect that they have. And as an actor, how do you dance the dance of you mentioned Gay Byrne there? It wasn't with Gay, but it was the Late Late Show. Mm-hmm. Liam Neeson they had like a dedicated special to him last year Late Late had a dedicated special to, uh, Liam, to Neeson. Liam Neeson yeah and he was talking about doing Schindler's List with Spielberg right and I just wanted to rescue as many <laughs> Jewish fellas from that train compartment as I put sorry <laughs> I was sort of doing a Good Morning America riff <laughs> Oscar Schindler but yeah. he said he hated Spielberg hated working with him Really, he's yeah. like he knew he was one of Heard. the all-time great directors, but mm. he said he was so precise in his direction. Yeah, like he would he would critique how Liam was holding his cigarette. Don't hold it like that. Hold it like this. Mm. Inhale for five seconds, and I want you to do a really long exhale. Then I want you to look slight to the left. And he said, "Boring." He hated it, but it's curious. He would say boring, but he said that when he looked back 
you know, it 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 got him the Oscar nom. It's regularly cited as one of his great performances. But he said he wasn't in control of it, so he he had yeah, this grappling yeah. of, is this just my ego or like or what is it? Well, the ego is is intimately connected to the to the creative pursuit. You know, you can't have one without the other. Do you know what I mean? It's like saying you you can have a fire without fuel. It's just not. It's the way we work. But and, if you know, if fair play to Stephen. He's a great director, but he can go fuck himself if if like like. And the truth is. If that's the kind of thing, it's like basically Stephen should be in a lab somewhere trying to invent a robot actor because the best creativity comes from that. that there's a crackle, there's a chemistry, there's a surprise that sort of happens around something that's that wasn't expected. You know, they're the moments. They're like the when you're climbing the mountain, Mr. Alex Honnold or whatever his name is. They're the, the little hand <laughs> like poles like that are clasping you onto a precipice because the rest is contrivance the rest isn't creative it's just repeat you know yeah when but you wouldn't tell TV steven spielberg to go fuck himself if no he was i mean i don't mean that to, in a, i don't mean it'd be, I'd in be literally it. but like uh, it's a hard one to say i mean it, you know there's no grapple in terms of for me anyway like with liam's situation there if he feels like it, it got him the oscar then he didn't get it if he wasn't in control of his performance and not to say, like, you know, everybody's in control of their performance, but it's about collaboration as yeah, much as. Yeah. And about knowing that on top of the foundation of the character, which I have created for you, you know, you can sort of direct and go, actually, you know, visually or emotionally, these things are are going to be really good and make make this scene pop and this, you know. and uh, But other than that, you're surely you're just a sort of a clothes hanger, aren't you? If you're Liam there being told how long to put the cigarette in your mouth for before you drag it back out and stuff, that just seems to me like a not a creative venture at all. I mean, in, it is for Steven Spielberg, I suppose, because yeah. he's, he storyboarded the film to within an inch of its life. But, like, he, he, he doesn't value spontaneity enough, basically, is my point, if that's the case. I remember meeting you for a drink in Smithfield, not last Christmas, oh, Christmas yeah. before. yeah. And what was the timeline? You'd shot Mortal Engines, but it hadn't come out, or it was just about to come out. Or... Oh, yeah. It had just come out. Just come out. Mm. It came out mid-December. Yes. Of 2018. That yeah. was 18. That was last Christmas, man. Mm. Yeah. And and so it was Peter Jackson, mm. and you had one of the main roles in it. Yeah. And I remember, I remember saying to you at the time, this could be it. This yeah. could be the role that yeah. propels you to the next mm. level. And that film, at least commercially, even if everyone was proud of it, it didn't maybe do the business that people expected. No. And I wonder what it's. I wonder what that feeling is like because you were aware of potentially what it could do for you, mm. and then and then maybe people were disappointed by it. I guess your yeah. thoughts around that whole time. It's funny how even a a very very large and very expensive financial failure should we say can still benefit you greatly you know (laughs) as an actor because it used to be more of a sense of like this actor is in trouble because the last three films that they have tent-poled with their presence let's say have failed you know but now it's like people don't really go to the cinema for that anymore they go to the cinema to give them something that tv can't which is concept spectacle you know and Mortal Engines was very, very much on the crest of that. It was like a high-concept, action-driven thing. And so 
my input as an actor was, was um, it wasn't damaged really. Okay. I mean, it would it would have been certainly less damaged if the <laughs> film had been a success, you know. Yeah. And do you post-mortem that stuff in the aftermath or do you go, that's annoying, move on? The truth is, man, <laughs> it depends on how much you care about each project. And you can't care about all of them the same. You know, it's like your kids. <laughs> <laughs> you have favourites and some of yeah, them are better than others. You have others. to love ones more than others. <laughs> To be honest with you, I don't think Mortal Engines is a particularly great film. Okay. It was a film made in a time where cinema was anxious, anxious to be more sort of episodic like Avengers or TV. It was just, it was in a rush to be setting up sequels. It was in a rush to be getting to the action. It was in a rush to be, you know. And it was weird, you know, because I did two PR stints for two projects. The first being Mortal Engines, the second being Umbrella Academy. Within the space of two three months the first one was mortal engines before christmas it was interesting because we did a ton of press for that you know in los angeles and so on and went to new york comic-con did a big uh, unveiling at new york comic-con and andy circus was the presenter of it and it was all this whole thing but you got this sense along the road that nobody was either aware or cared about the movie you know but then, when Umbrella come around, on the lead up to the opening of that, I'd sort of speak about it to people, maybe in the business, and they'd be like, oh my God, I've seen the thing for that. That looks amazing. And there was just this confirmation in people's heads before Umbrella even come out that it was good. And there was a confirmation in people's heads before Mortal Engines came out that it didn't matter. Yeah, okay. you, you could just sense it. Did you ever give LA a go? Because you, you, I feel like London is kind of your home now, and you're a bit of a, you're a bit of a, a glamorous hobo. Yeah, but glamorous hobo. Did you ever think of LA? I did. I lived there for about ten months, and I ran out of there like my arse was on fire. Eventually, why? Um, it's just it's a very I I you know at the time in my life I was going through a relationship, was fighting a lot, um couldn't really catch a cold let alone a gig (laughs) when i was living in los angeles and just kind of led this sort of strange life where you know you're alone a lot in la you know london is kind of you know it can be a challenge to see your friends absolutely but you know if you don't as long as you don't live in zone five and six like you can you can sort of pop around and yeah you know a lot of my mates are kind of not too far away from each other they're all you know, so you can cycle across and, you know, there's there's still that community vibe. But there, I've, you know, I think it was just this kind of cultural chasm between me and L.A. I just felt I didn't belong there, really. I felt like I was uh, probably indulging in the old party treats too much. Do you know what I mean? And by that, I just mean getting drunk and, like, occasionally getting baked. But, like, too much, though, you know, it just sort of became, like, the sort of regular kind of whatever occurrence. And I was sort of doing it to kind of probably run away from the stresses of the relationship and sort of slightly burying my head in the sand to the fact that I was didn't really know what I was doing there and wasn't really doing any acting or anything. And it was just... Uh, were you, you getting know, seen for things or were you not even yeah, getting seen? Yeah, I was kind of getting seen for things here and there, but I didn't, I didn't get any job. Basically, I moved over to, to LA because I went and did this action film called Geostorm, which was the which was like October, November-ish of 2014. And uh, my 
ex-girlfriend at the time was living in Los Angeles. That film was shot in New Orleans. So I just went, yeah, you know, I'll just move to L.A. And, uh, you know, this is sort of taking me across to the Americas. And I mean, I, I, I had a nice time. I traveled up and down the coast of California and stuff. But um, I don't know. I, I associate that time in my life with a sort of a sorrowful, isolated air, you know? You were in a relationship and... Oh yeah, oh, yeah all that good stuff. All that good stuff, and that's it. That's I, ended, and that's your no, business. I, you know, there was a lot of joy in it as well. We had we had the lovely times as well. We really did. We did, but we had too many of the other times. The question I had around that time in your life was: Was it difficult? I always wonder about, like, if I was dating a fellow broadcaster. Yeah. Would you benchmark yourself against them? Your lady was an actress also, and she was yeah, maybe yeah. enjoying some success while you had a quiet time and. Does yeah. any of that ever creep in? It, it sounds like a lie, but honestly, no. Honest to God. That was one part of our game that was quite strong. I remember uh, I did a film with that, your man Justin Theroux. Do you know him? Justin yeah. Theroux. And, uh, Who ended up dating Jennifer Aniston. Yeah, they were married, you know. Oh, they did get married. No, you're right. And we were, I remember we were having a few drinks quite late. And, and he was like, guys, the best piece of advice I can offer you is Never compare and despair. Never compare and despair. <laughs> you know, and he was basically saying that thing that 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 leads you to a path of self destruction because his wife was off doing a L'Oreal commercial for like eight million dollars or something that yeah. that week. But um, no, honestly, we never re we were very supportive of each other in that way. And and to be honest, like it feels it would feel really weird to envy your girlfriend. You know what I mean? Like, I, I get the thing that she's she, she's doing good, like, um, parts. She's getting parts. But you were like, those parts were never there for me to get. You know, that was for a girl. <laughs> and I understand. She's, she's greatly talented. And I thought, no, I always saw that as a gift. Yeah, I okay. really, really genuinely did. But, it, yeah, yeah it, can, it does affect actors, definitely. Yeah. Do you, as an actor, do you feel like, are you happy as long as you're working? Or are you, as of yet, unsated because you haven't found the defining role? Or do you long to be working with the DiCaprios and Scorseses of the world? Not necessarily, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, well, that's the question, I guess. Yeah. yeah. When you work with the DiCaprios, there's a whole... There's a whole sort of load of baggage that goes with that, you know, not in a bad way, but just in a it's going to be a big, huge, expensive film. And, you know, those things are very, quite chaotic. And, you know, it's like, you know, Umbrella is a pretty ideal job, to be absolutely honest with you. You know, it's creatively fun and fulfilling in that I have a, a real sort of input into the grassroots of the of the character, you know, from the kind of writings and. You know, you can you can fuck around with dialogue. You can you can mess around with the scene. You can kind of go in and play, and find those spontaneous uh, finger grabs. You know, on the, on the cliff face yeah. all day long, and it's really really lovely. You know, when you get into big films and big telly and stuff, they are big logistical machines. Like they're big big things. And as as I said before, when you're creating for someone else, for a director, all of those machines can take precedence you know over what you're having to do and so when you know alexander in is trying to achieve a very tricky shot in the revenant can be damn sure that the, that those that the creativity of the technician of the crane and the gimbal and the other thing and the other that team they're the ones you're helping them to create their vision you know yeah and as long as you're okay with that that's great you know and so um 
it'd be lovely to work with Martin Scorsese. Martin, if you're listening, I will reconsider right, for the right <laughs> role. But you're going to have to sit on my lap and look right in my eyes before I <laughs> and ask me. Um, I'd like to do more plays, to be honest, because you're just on a stage and you're just making something sparkle if you can. Because, you know, again, TV and film acting, you got to say it and then you got to stop. And then you got to say it again and then you got to stop <laughs> and then you got to say it again and then you got to stop in a silent room and there's no audience feedback. There's just, you know, there could be a director who goes, great, love that fourth one. Are you happy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Fuck it up. Yeah, great. Yeah. But that's the thing as well. You know, you hit the nail on the head of it because it does, it can breed a complacency in you, you know? Yeah. Because you're kind of going into a slightly echo chamber where when you're getting approval all day for the thing that you're doing, that no, you, it doesn't occur to you that it could be wrong or it could be better. You know, and this, this is, you know, I'm just basically ex- <laughs> trying to explain complacence in, a, in, a, <laughs> in an overly verb- verbose way. Um, but it can feel that way after a while. It can start to feel like you, have to, you kind of go through waves of being genuinely committed to it. You know, yeah. beyond your capability, your capability will always see you through, you know, that's the, the joy, the, the gem of experience, you know, in anything, you can kind of rely on that, that it will kick in and the engine will see you right through. But that's not the same as going in there and discovering and, you know, the first series of Umbrella had a lot of that at the beginning, like we were sort of furiously researching who the character was and stuff but then when you really start to know the character and he's kind of he's wearing his shirt under your shirt and you just feel like yeah i know him you know i really really know him and again that can feel that can start to feel (laughs) a bit sort of complacency so i'm just sort of sensitive to the things that make me fat as they'd say in the hip-hop community okay you know i mean when you're living in la or even here in london yeah i suppose because it can happen anywhere in the world i was oh, yeah. just purely because it's topical i was listening to the daily podcast the new york times podcast yesterday and they were doing a two-parter on the harvey weinstein trial oh yeah that's happening now isn't happening it? now right yeah and they were talking funny they were saying like they there was about 80 complainants but only two of them have made it to trial because, because they've of, all been paid off not, not no, not not so much. They've all been paid off because there was eighty people offered information, but when it was put to them specifically what going to trial would involve About a U.S. deposition and all that type of thing, mm, they just the, the numbers willing to go through that process just all melted away. Yeah, um, right. But is that something that you or any of your fellow actors were ever aware of? Shory stories shared, or or did you and your your cohort largely escape that? Probably the females of the species. Yeah, well, that was the thing, you know. I think that was was a bit jarring about the Me Too things. You go, wow, as a man, you know, I've I've been pretty pretty blind to this. You yeah. Know? When I did that play, Playboy, Spacey was the Spacey was was the artistic director of the theater. But there was always stories about Spacey. Certainly, there was always stories about how he was quite quite familiar. You know, offering sort of abstract career promotions. If you know what I mean. Yeah, but um, I was always incredibly peripheral, like to all that. I never really heard that much stories about Weinstein or anything like that. I just heard that he was very, very, very power hungry and loved to fuck actresses. And I mean, I think it it still is part of the business. I don't think it's necessary. I mean, it has, it has changed. You know, sometimes I worry about the change. I mean, it is. You know, obviously, it's it's a great thing to shed light on these things and sort of 
change the norms of behavior around all that stuff. I think in the beginning of when all that was happening, I felt like the media were running away with it. And I felt like the lesson here is that if the media will get a sniff of, do you know what I mean? But then as stories kind of came in and in and in, it was like, no, this is this is a real fucking epidemic of a thing. I found it very shocking that it was kind of there right under my nose, I think. Yeah. You see your pink shoes there? Yes. They're are you lovely. jealous? I am jealous. You are. Depending on the day, sometimes you're you're like part Willy Wonka, part pre-woke Russell Brand, <laughs> part Jack Sparrow. Um, yeah, Russ, Russ seems all cardigans <laughs> these days. He's kind of... Yeah, he's very zen. I hadn't until recently, which is terrible because my sister writes for him, um, but you did an interview with Hot Press a while ago and it said you had experimented with your sexuality when Ooh. you were younger. That just meant putting a... Putting a clothes peg on it. <laughs> uh, with your fashion, because sometimes mm-hmm. I asked you the other day, I was like, that's a gorgeous top. Where did you get that top? Like, oh, it was in the women's section in so and so. Are you kind of conscious of how you present yourself with your clothes? Is it trying to say anything or do you just like any clothes and you wear I them as you like, see fit? I just like clothes that feel good on. Yeah. You know, I think it's a distinction that's that's important to draw that sartorial preference has really nothing to do I think with sexuality ultimately I think there's tribal you know there's tribal sort of colours that you know we're talking about drag culture in Dublin you know that's very visible and it's very noticeable and it has it has characteristics I think as long as to thine own self be true yeah you know that just you just have to follow that and uh Wherever it leads you, so be it. I think it's sad if there are people in Ireland or beyond who um, who who feel like they have to wear a certain grown-up uniform that they don't particularly like, you know, and they'd, they'd, in their heart of hearts, prefer to wear something else. Yeah. And you just think, wear it. You know, there's nothing... But I think I think especially in the in the in the modern times, being part of the community, I think, is a big... It's a big priority for yeah. people and people don't want to do or wear something that will sort of sideline them from the herd. There's a pretty risque billboard of you in your hometown in Port Leash. What do they make of that? That, was, that made me laugh, right? And then I, was, I, t- I rang my mum. I go, did you see this billboard down the main street of Port Leash? And for those of you who uh, don't know what we're talking about, so up to, up, on the, up to the release of the first series of Umbrella, they did these quite strategic uh, billboards around. They did one in David Castaneda's hometown in Mexico as well. And it was me with no top on, very sort of um, saucy leather pants with kind of with piping down the side, no shirt and a, a pink feather boa. And uh, I said to my mom, I was like, so what, what, did, what did the town make of it? And I just, I, I, I just <laughs> sent... Just the slightest bit of reservation in her voice, you know. It was Why just did they t- pick that one? It was too, I feel like it was like too risque for the palate of Port Leash people. Homeboy done good. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. Could he not have presented himself better to the world? He's repping Port Leash. Do you know what was interesting about being back this time, actually? was, what? You know, because I consider myself quite spiritual these days. And it was quite interesting to go down to the to the church, the Catholic church in Port Leash on Christmas Eve for mass mm. and just to have a look at the biggest spiritual game in town, you know? Which it is. It's it's like out the door packed. It was really nice to see actually. It was just everybody and like there was like six priests on stage and they were all withering on about something. Yeah. 
you know, it's really hard to follow, <clears throat> to, to sort of get any sense of even symbolic or literal pick meaning out of the shite that they drivel on on a Catholic altar. But it was fascinating seeing the congregation because they're all genuflecting, eyes closed, hands clasped in in themselves. They're, they're, they've been drawn inward. Yeah. You know, in one way or another. And you think, well, that's what that rhetoric is for then. You know, it's for... It's the grammar of spirituality from where I'm from. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's uh, it was really lovely. It was actually really beautiful because, like, I've, I'm I'm on this little sort of private. Uh, you know, I don't I don't like to bore people's arse off about it, but this meditation journey, which has been absolutely fucking sublime. And in my what life. have you found? And it's, it's been it's been solitary to some degree. I mean, sometimes I meditate with other people. But mostly it's on my own, which yeah. is kind of the way I like it. But to then walk into a room in Port Leash and to see 400 people all meditating together. But are they, that's, I, like, I wonder, are they just there out of pure blind tradition? Like there's nothing nourishing from it those didn't seem services. That way. Didn't feel that way. I don't know. Didn't like, feel that way. I, I, mean, I, like, I, I personally don't believe that 2020 years ago, Walking around the Middle East was the physical manifestation of the omnipresent creator of the no. universe. So I can't buy into Catholicism or Christianity in that regard. But I no. understand the need for needing something or wanting to believe or finding comfort mm. in a set of principles yeah. that guide you. Because I, I suppose just, the, the forces that exist inside us are very mercurial. And I'm in the lucky position where nobody super close to me has died yet, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And maybe when that happens, I will look for some system that well, leads me to believe I'll see them again or their energy exists in the universe or whatever it may be but it just hasn't happened yet you haven't seen the the cadaver of one of your dear friends yeah. you haven't seen what they look like without the miraculous energy of life coursing through their veins so you have no frame of reference between life and death do you know what I'm saying yeah. neither do I most people don't you know and it's the it's the removal of this this frame of reference that sort of abstracts you from your own spirituality because you don't know what you look like without your life I don't need it yet you do, well you have it whether you need it or not yeah but I'm, 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 I'm curious to see what happens when I do need it what I find what were we talking about before your pink but, shoes oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> which are very much alive the dash listeners Activism, right? You posted a photo on your Instagram account at Rosie Mikes. You probably get seven new followers now. Mm. Don't fall over yourselves. Uh-oh. But it was you said you met with um, Climate Action. Climate Action. And my question for Extinction you is: Extinction Rebellion. What people may or may not know is mm-hmm. you lived, or she was your landlord. Did you live with her, Jamila Jamil, for a short while. Oh yeah, no, we lived together. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. Was my landlord. Yeah. How was she as a housemate? Yeah, grand. Personal <laughs> hygiene, tidy. Oh, uh, you know, <laughs> just she's a mortal being, okay. like us all. As are you, yeah. Uh, but, but but she she uh, you'd rarely see her. You know, she's 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 about five hundred things on the go. Yeah. You know? So we kind of we ex- we were like sort of quantum particles. We existed in the same space, but we never we've sort of rarely interacted. Yeah. Okay. Have you followed her career at all? No. You, okay. So she's obviously you know she's in the good place in America. Oh yeah, I did see that. Yeah. It's I saw a bit of that. She was really good in it. Yeah, actually. she yeah. was really funny. She's really forged a little niche for herself. But what she's been huge on is activism, 
Yeah, right. Particularly around body image. Mm. Um, I do remember some of this when we lived together, yeah. And she's she's really gone hard at the Kardashians for like their promoting of, you know, laxatives dressed up as skinny detox tea. You know, and it's a lot of stuff around body image. She, mm. I think she's been really wonderful. Really, they're promoting laxative? Mm-hmm. Wow. For a lot of money. Um, a oh. million a post, apparently, they get for that stuff. That's but, so disgustingly grim. But she's made that a huge part of her identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I wonder, you do some activism stuff. Do you feel like you have a role mm-hmm. in terms of some kind of social conscience? Or do you think that's kind of a whim that some actors well, indulge? Because? because I have arms and legs and a body and a brain, mm. I feel like. And I uh, through meditation, I often feel very grateful for things. You know, meditation's nice. If anyone's teetering on the edge, what's nice about it is that it, it, it can physicalize positive emotion. Mm. So you feel... Actually, Eckhart, ta- I keep referencing back to old Eckhart because he's brilliant. But he uh, he spoke about this this sort of uh, fizzy water feeling that completely overwhelms your body. And he described it as being plugged into an electrical socket. Right? Yeah. But what that feels like is God. It's absolutely extraordinary. That is meditation for me and I can conjure it at will. And because of it, it has increased my empathy and my gratitude for the world. And, you know, celebrity or no, it has, uh, um, I think, accelerated my desire to make, to want to improve the world. Just that's all. And because I have a celebrity platform, great, I'll use that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I have air in my lungs that I like breathing and I have arms and legs and I I can go and do stuff and I can help. And I find you get a great sense of meaning and happiness by doing things for the world, for other people. Do you know what I mean? And that's kind of, I think, the bill of goods that consumerism sells us is that if you do nice things for yourself, you'll feel nice. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is the opposite of the truth. And what would you say to, um, we touched on this before, but what would you say to Ricky Gervais's take at the Golden Globes, mm-hmm. where he's like, ah, oh, shut up, don't use this platform to spread your noble messages, take mm-hmm. your award, fuck off. We all live a life of insane privilege. You don't know what it's like. Uh, my to opinion struggle. is his his first uh, his first priority is to be funny. He can say whatever he wants, and it doesn't have to affect people going up there and actually. You know, why would if you had something that you genuinely cared about, and you knew a few million people were watching, would you really let Ricky Gervais prevent you from saying it? <laughs> so why <laughs> why care what he says? I guess maybe his priorities be funny. I guess is it that thing of it's easy when you live a life of relative or maybe great privilege mm-hmm. to go we need to do this we need to do that but for the for for the regular joe soap is earning 23000 mm-hmm. euros a year they can't but afford to I get an electric way, car the and the they way, need yeah. to buy diesel because it mm-hmm. gets them 50% further than a petrol car and that's the economic reality I think, I think, of it i think what you've done there is you've boiled down all people's impulse to um to make the world a better place into we need to do this and we need to do that. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. not what, that's not often what the messages are. Yeah. You know, it's not like they're going up there with a shopping list of things that everybody has to do. Yeah. I think, I think often it's about a consciousness shift. It's about a way of uh, uh, looking at each other and the world differently. That's, I think, how things might change. It's not like, go get an electric car, be a vegan. And whoever is saying that, frankly, is has missed the point. Yeah. So, you so what can't, is the point? You can't, the, the point is that there needs to be a consciousness shift, which I would say an elevation, 
towards empathy and kindness, which meditation does. And what's great, actually, is that they're doing it a lot in schools now with little kids. Yeah. They're normalizing meditation for little kids together. And when 30, 40 human beings uh, uh, meditate together, there's an incredible consciousness amplification, which has been proven to have amazing effects on millions of people in the surrounding area. Like in Washington, D.C., they did this experiment called the Peacefield Effect, where for, I think, two or three months, at different times, they did it like loads of different times, but for two or three months, they got like two or two to 5,000 people, I believe, meditating every single morning together before work, right? Mm. And the violent crime rate of the entire city which is about seven or eight million people, went down drastically in that period because we are all one consciousness and we're just in a temporary illusion of separateness. I, I genuinely do believe that. And so you can, you can have a pop at the ones who are like, oh, you shouldn't vote for that person. You should do this. You should do that. Osho said one shouldn't have shoulds or should nots. Just it's do just, or do not. Just be and be kind to yourself. And if you're kind to yourself, you'll be kind to others. Treat yourself like you'd like to treat other people. That's a good note to wrap it up on, I feel. I think so too. Rob, thank you for your time. No um, worries. Do you want one of my pink shoes? I think we should walk out of here with one pink shoe each. If the shoe fits, <laughs> put it on your hand. Hey, it's been it's been a rollicking good time. Con- Woohoo! Continued success. Roller coasters of love, everyone. So there you have it, folks. Episode one, season two, deep diving down. Thanks so much to Rob for coming on. I hope you enjoyed. If you did enjoy, please stick it on your socials. Please tell your friends. Please subscribe to the podcast. It doesn't cost you anything. It just means as soon as I upload new episodes, you'll be the first to know. My guest on the show next week is TV and radio presenter and current host of Love Island UK, Miss Laura Whitmore. It's a cracker. It's a really interesting listen. Laura's in flying form and I hope you'll join us. Peace.